0: Good morning. If I could get the kids to come up here, that would be great. We're going to do our kids' message quick. So come up, then I can pretend the adults aren't here and just talk to you for a minute. Hi. All right. I have kind of a silly question for you guys. Are you ready? How many of you have ever done something that when you look back at it, you think, oh my goodness, that was such a bad idea. That was really a foolish thing to do. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I just did that. Have you guys ever had a time like that? Maybe you were showing off. Or, well, we're not going to take examples because I think that could go off the rails real quick. But can you guys all think of a time when you've done something like that? Okay, I'm actually going to share a time when I did something like that. And it's not even when I was a little kid, because adults still sometimes have times like that. So do you guys want to hear a story? So this is a famous Oliver story at our house, okay? So about... I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, when my oldest son, Ethan, was a kid. We were doing math one day at home, and it was not going well. He was, in my opinion, not trying very hard, and I was working really hard to explain this lesson to him, and he was being frustrated and disrespectful and just... Oh, I just got so frustrated that I took my fist and I punched the whiteboard that I was writing on. And I mean, I punched this thing. I was so mad. I lost my temper and I was like... Ah! And I I yelled at him, and I basically said, you need to leave right now. I'm so mad. And then I shut the doors of the office, and I basically threw a temper tantrum. I stomped around, and I cried. And then after a while, I was stomping around and crying because I was so angry at myself for losing my temper and for yelling, and I'm thinking oh, my poor children, they're going to they're gonna be scared of me now. And, oh, I just ruined everything, all my hard work of being a good mom. Oh. Do you think that's really what happened? I think they were all in the other room kind of laughing at me, throwing a little panic attack in there. And now it's one of their favorite stories. Like, do you remember when Mom punched the whiteboard? That was so funny. Right? Right? But at the time, I was so frustrated with myself. And I heard Satan whispering to me all sorts of lies, like, you're a really bad mom, and they're never going to listen to you again. And you've really messed up this time. Do you think that's what God was thinking about me? Do you think God was thinking, oh, well, she was doing pretty good, but I guess I can't use her anymore. Do you think that's what he was thinking? No. no. He doesn't think that way about us because you know why? He knows that we are going to mess up. Right? He knows that we're going to do some really silly things. And in fact, one of the things I love about the Bible is that when it talks about all those heroes of the Bible, people like David and Moses and Abraham and the disciples, all of these really cool, famous, amazing men and women of God, it does not hide the fact that they messed up. Actually, they kind of messed up a lot. And that's good news for us, because you know why? I mess up a lot. Do you mess up a lot? Do you? Yeah. We mess up a lot. So today in the scripture that Ben is going to preach on today, There's a couple of times that we see the disciples actually making some pretty foolish mistakes, okay? So I'm going to actually read the first one because I want us to remember that God can use people even when they're kind of foolish. So I'm going to read it, and I want you guys to see if you can hear or figure out what the disciples did, okay? So this is from the Transfiguration here. This is um, Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Okay, did you guys hear anything that the disciples did that might have been a foolish thing to do or to say? What do you think? They
1: fell asleep.
0: Ooh, good. That was kind of the hidden one. I wasn't sure if you'd find that one right away. Yeah, they went up on the mountain to pray. Who was praying? Were the disciples praying? What do you think? No, No, they weren't just a little asleep. They were like really asleep, right? The Bible said that they were sound, heavy with sleep. It took them a few minutes to wake up. I bet they thought they were dreaming. Do you think so? Okay, so now what else did they do that was maybe not the brightest thing to do? You guys didn't catch it. Here they see Jesus and two men from long ago, glowing on the mountain. And what's their brilliant plan? Yeah, let's set up some tents. This is cool. I can set up some tents for you guys. They didn't really know what they were talking about, but they were trying to be helpful, right? Sometimes even when we're trying to be helpful, we can do some silly things, right? So God. Jesus didn't say, oh, you guys are so foolish, just go do something else, right? Jesus still loved his disciples and used them, and I find that really good news. I'm just going to, there's actually, if you guys listen, I'm not sure exactly how far Ben's going to read today, but you might hear one other time the disciples were um, not the wisest in Luke here today. But here's one of my favorite scriptures that I'm going to read really quick. This is from Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you guys remember how God made Adam in the garden or and Eve? How did he make them? How?
1: He made them from dust.
0: Right. He actually, with, with Adam, he actually took the dirt and formed him out of the dust, right? He remembers how we were made. He knows that we're dust, that we're going to mess up, that we're going to make mistakes, and he remembers and he has compassion on us when we make mistakes. He will forgive us and remove our sins. So the next time you guys mess up and you're tempted to think, oh no, I can't be used by God. I've messed up too big this time. I want you to remember that God remembers that we are dust and he forgives us. Okay? All right. Thank you.
1: Good morning, Crossroads. So a few months ago, I was talking with Pastor Brad, and it was after he had been gone for a week and we had somebody else in the pulpit. and I said, you know what would be a really great idea is if you have an elder preach once in a while when you're gone. I thought it was great because it would get uh, get an elder up here. You could hear our heart and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I thought it was a wonderful idea until about three weeks ago when Brad came to me and said, hey, remember how you said you wanted an elder in the pulpit? Now is your chance. So here we are. Uh, I am very grateful to be here. Uh, it is wonderful to see all of you here. And I'm uh, pretty impressed with... The way that we can even put this out over the internet, so people can see it all over and to hear the gospel uh, preached. So, um, for the past five weeks, and carrying throughout the rest of this summer, we're studying the gospel of Luke together. Particularly, we're looking at stories that tell us who Jesus is and how He operates. Over the past weeks, you've been asked. Uh, over the past week, you've been asked to spend some time reading through chapters nine and ten. Of Luke and I hope that you've had a chance to do that. Once Brad had approached me and I had committed to preach, I spent a number of days listening to the audio Bible of these two chapters on repeat. Uh, we have, I have a lot of time commuting now. I spend an hour and a half to two and a half hours driving and I get to use that for benefit. I listen to the scriptures, I listen to worship music, I listen to audiobooks. books. Uh, it's not always the Bible that I'm listening to, but I actually redeem my time in the car. And so if you have to commute, I encourage you to use that time well. Um, so I listen to this over and over on repeat for hours at a time for a couple days or three days in a row just to get a general feel for chapters 9 and 10, and I wanted to start listening for themes that carried through this section of of Scripture. If we do a quick read over 9 and 10, it gives us a a couple primary focus. Uh, We see a lot of time spent on training the 12 disciples. We see training of a larger group of followers, as well as them being sent out. We also see a distinct change in Christ's focus as he starts to look forward to Jerusalem and what he will encounter there at the end of his at the end of his life. As these two chapters are rather lengthy, they cover some very well known stories about Jesus in the middle section of his ministry. Some of these stories include feeding the 5,000, Jesus saying, Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus healing a boy with an unclean spirit, Jesus foretelling his death a number of times, the disciples, of course, fighting over who is the greatest among themselves the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the story of Mary and Martha. This list contains some heavy hitters, which contend for quite a bit of preaching time in the Church of Christ. As I spent time studying these chapters, I was looking for themes which carried through, and I desired to not necessarily teach on the well-known stories, but rather the less frequented sections, which would show another side of who Jesus is. The first theme which stuck out to me is found twice in chapter 9 as well as once in chapter 8. This is, in fact, the major theme throughout the entire New Testament. The Jews, whether powerful or common or even Jesus' own disciples, were asking this question. Who is the man Jesus? In the grand scope of Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus has already been ministering in Galilee for some time. His disciples have been with him for an extended time and have seen him perform multiple miracles and healings. Crowds are starting to flock to him wherever he goes, and rumors are starting to spread about Jesus and who he might be. There are three distinct categories of people who are asking this question between chapter 8 and chapter 9. The disciples, the powerful people, and also the crowds. The first category we look at consists of his disciples. These guys are Christ's closest friends, the ones who have been following him since the beginning of his ministry. If anyone would show him, uh, should know him, it would be this group of people. In Luke 8:22 through 25, the disciples and Jesus were crossing the Sea of Galilee when a storm blew up. The disciples feared for their lives as Jesus was taking a nap in the bow of the boat. I don't think he was too concerned. After being woken up by the terrified men and rebuking the wind and waves, Jesus turned to his disciples and said this, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? These guys who have spent months watching firsthand as Jesus healed and taught and performed miracles— The Jewish lens through which they had been viewing life made it difficult to understand what Jesus said and did. The second category of people which was considering Jesus is the powerful. Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was basically on the level of a governor. Let's be honest, he's not a guy that I want my kids to aspire to be when they grow up. He was recognized by Caesar Augustus as ruler in Galilee after his father died in 4 B.C., He was directly responsible for the execution of John the Baptist and also involved in the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. As he appointed ruler over Galilee, it was his job to know what was going on in the area where he ruled. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some, that Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear so many things? And he sought to see Jesus. Rumors and stories about Jesus were getting back to Herod, and he was listening, and he was confused because some of them claimed that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Herod himself had John killed. The reason he did this is because Herod had divorced his wife and then married his brother's wife. So that kind of goes against a lot of the laws that, uh, that John was talking about. And so when John was speaking against Herod, Herod got a little cranky. And then there's a whole story going into how that whole thing happened, which we won't go into today. But Herod had things against John, had John killed, and now the rumors are that John was back from the dead. And so Herod had to figure out what was going on. So he decided that he wanted to actually see Jesus and understand who Jesus was for himself. The third category of people seeking to know about Jesus was the crowds. In Luke, 18, uh, in Luke 9, verses 18 through 20, Jesus and his disciples were sitting together. Uh, they were alone praying, and, and Jesus asked his followers, Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples shared the three leading rumors that they had heard, which are the same as what Herod had heard, that John the Baptist was back from the dead, uh, that he could be Elijah. Um, One thing about Elijah is that at the end of his life, he was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. So the Jewish tradition taught this, and as a result, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to think that Elijah could possibly have been brought back from heaven in the flesh. So that's where possibly that rumor came from. The last one is that he was one of the prophets of old. So the prophets were there to teach uh, the people of the laws of God and how to live out those laws. They were calling the people to repentance and to bear witness to God. The work of all true prophets was to act as God's messenger and make known the will of God. This is exactly what Jesus had been doing. He had been preaching, he had been calling people to repent, and he had been pointing people towards God. After they had explained the three rumors, Jesus then asked the next question of them directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly answered, the Christ of God. So my question is this, what has changed from the time in the boat, which wasn't that long ago, till this day when Peter rightly answers that he is Christ. And so I have a couple ideas on that. The first thing is this. When Jesus called the storm, that was the first miracle that directly affected the disciples. All the other miracles that they had seen Jesus do was healing of other people or casting out demons from other people. This is the first time that they were directly affected by a miracle. The next thing is that they they did see Jesus heal more people in between the boat and this time, specifically the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons in chapter 8. Even the demons knew who Christ was, and they clearly proclaimed that he was the Son of God, right before being sent into a herd of pigs. Jesus then fed the 5,000, which was a stretch to the disciples' faith. It wasn't a simple miracle that was done. It It was put on them, what do we have? And they had five loaves and two fishes that they brought to Jesus and physically saw him change that into enough to feed 5,000 with how many baskets left over? Twelve. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. Then the next thing is Jesus trained them. He took time to specifically train the twelve and send them out to preach and heal with the power that he gave them. So again, I ask what has changed between the boat and this day? As a result of being ministered to and watching Jesus in his ministry, the disciples grew in their own faith and understanding. And as a result of their increased faith, it was revealed and confirmed in their minds that Jesus was indeed the Christ of God, the long-awaited Messiah. So with the rumors growing, you can see that there are three distinct groups. The rumors are growing rampant. They're getting all over the place. God decided that it was time that he would... Uh, answer those rumors, and clearly answer the question, who is this man? So let's take a look at uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 36. Now at about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Jesus, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and Moses and for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I just have to say this, I don't do my best work after I come out of a deep sleep. Uh, If there's anybody out there who does, teach me, okay? And so I just think it's funny that the first thing he thinks about, and Amy mentioned it earlier, is that let's build you a tent. Not saying, teach me, Elijah, or teach me, Moses, but let's build a tent so you guys can hang out longer. Uh, As he was saying these things, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered that cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. At the transfiguration, God chose to refute the rumors which were being spread about his son. He sent Elijah and Moses in response to the rumors that Jesus was in fact Elijah or one of the two prophets. And he also reveals himself to the three disciples in a cloud and speaks clearly, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So this mirrors what God did in Luke at Christ's baptism by coming down and declaring who Jesus was. You are my beloved son, with whom, with you, I am well pleased. And as well as what Peter said in 920, you are the Christ of God. So what is the significance of God saying, Listen to To Jesus. The disciples grew up in a tradition uh, of the Jewish system, which held the Old Testament laws and customs and prophecies. Christ's teaching was revolutionary as it correctly interpreted the Old Testament using the lens of the kingdom of God and the new covenant. This command by God to listen is also a fulfillment of Deuteronomy, where it says, the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from among you From your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen. So all through the book of Luke and the New Testament altogether, the Jewish crowds, the Jewish disciples, and the Jewish authorities were asking the same question. Who is this Jesus? This is the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer as we go through life. At the transfiguration, God clearly put to rest the rumors and speculations by not just showing who Jesus was not, but by clearly stating to three witnesses who Jesus is and commanding the people to listen to Christ's teaching. So now that we've answered the question, who is Jesus, I want to move on to the second theme which stuck out to me in chapters 9 and 10. This one centers on the two accounts of Jesus sending out his followers to the surrounding towns to proclaim the kingdom of God. In the first stage of Jesus' ministry, he did most of the teaching, healing, and ministry himself, and he had selected his core group of disciples and modeled for them how he wanted them to conduct themselves as they were among other people. At this point, they had seen enough that Jesus was ready for them to go out and begin to teach and minister on their own. He first sent the 12 disciples and then 72 of his other committed followers. And as we look at the accounts of these two groups being sent, there are great similarities and yet some striking differences between how Jesus sent the 12 and how he sent the 72. So let's start by looking at Jesus sending the 12 apostles. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet, and as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere." So imagine this, you've been watching Jesus for months, do all the work, all the teaching, all the miracles, and finally it's your turn. Uh, they've been watching, and, uh, and now they have the same ability as Jesus. So I think back to teaching my kids how to hunt for deer. I didn't give them a rifle on day one and point them in a direction and say, walk that way, you'll find a ladder sticking up in a tree, climb it, and when a deer walks in front of you, shoot it. It's not how it works, all right? So I would go out with them. I would take them. I'd teach them safety uh, for firearms. I'd take them out to the stands that they were going to be in. I would sit with them for a number of days, if not a couple different seasons, as they watched and learned what I did. They may not even get to hold a gun right away, which is probably good. And so eventually, after they've been trained in, they've seen how I did it. I put the gun in their hands. I walk them out to the stand, I make sure they're settled, and then I turn and I walk away. And I let them do what I have been modeling for them for a long time. I'm still close by, and Amy's still in the cabin praying, but we're letting them get out on their own and do what they've been wanting and training to do. Jesus gave clear orders to his disciples uh, so that there would be no questioning of what their purpose was, to proclaim the kingdom of God to heal he gave further instructions for what they should pack for their trip he said this take nothing how many people have sent their kids to camp a few of us do you send them with nothing Nope. we send kids we have kids going almost every single week this month to camp And uh, leading up to it, we put more clothes in that they're going to need, we put far more underwear in than they're going to need, and they put in far more candy than they're going to need. And so the one instruction I give them is at least open your suitcase, take all your clothes out, muss them all up, and then put them back in so it doesn't look exactly like it does today. Right? Jesus is the complete opposite. He says take nothing because he wants his people to rely on God, not just for their physical needs, but also for the ministry of what they're about to do. Jesus also gave some warnings saying that along the way they're going to encounter both welcoming and unwelcoming people. He told them when they're rejected not to get uptight, not to be offended, but simply to turn and to leave to shake the dust off their feet, and to move on. He didn't want them to get caught up and offended when, they were, when the people refused to listen to the gospel. Luke doesn't ind- indicate how long the 12 were away from Jesus, but when they returned, they reported all that had happened, and then Jesus moved on to the next part of ministry in Bethsaida. So pretty clear. He sent them out, he gave them instructions, he told them to heal, And to talk about the kingdom. That's what the 12 were supposed to do. Next, we look at the sending of the 72. It's very similar to what we just read, so I'm not going to read the particular section uh, other than this part. Um, Now, the Lord chose 72 and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places that he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, uh, no no bag or an extra pair of sandals. As Jesus' ministry continues to gain momentum, he prepares a larger group of followers to go out and prepare the towns and places where he intends to visit. The group is to use the buddy system as the witness of one person did not carry the same weight as the witness of two. Both Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15 give similar requirements about receiving testimony in a court of law. It says this, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three. So we look back to the transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John, so there would be three people to give testimony to what they had seen. Here he's sending out his followers in pairs so that it's not just one person that is saying something, but it's two people which has more weight. If you hear one person saying something that sounds a little bit off, it's different than hearing two people say the same thing as a testimony. Like John the Baptist, the 72 were sent out to prepare the way for Christ's arrival. These were his, his instructions. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his field. This was the first wave of laborers. Jesus knew that more people were needed to prepare the way, to preach the gospel, and to be ready for him to show up. This was the first wave. They were to go out, talk about the kingdom, and teach people about Jesus before he came. The next thing he said, now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among the wolves. Why would he say that? Uh, The reason is this. The people of Jesus' day were waiting for a conquering hero to arrive and drive the Roman oppressors out of the promised land. They were longing for Jesus to to be portrayed like he is in Revelation, with him clothed in white, with burning eyes, with a voice like many waters, holding seven stars in his hand and a sword coming out of his mouth. They wanted a hero. But instead, the gospel that Jesus teaches is gentle. He came to bound up the brokenhearted, to open the hearts of the people to the kingdom of God. It's to be preached with compassion, not a sword. Christ's gospel is one of peace, one that heals the broken people. It will never be received by force or coercion, And it is already an affront to the sinful hearts who hear the message. The spreading of Christ's gospel requires a spirit to work through willing followers who once were also broken people. So he sends them out with nothing just like the twelve, teaching them to rely on God for their every need. And as they were totally prepared, he was ready to send them out and he gave them just one more thing the very purpose of why he's sending them, which is found in verse 8 and 9. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So their very specific purpose was this. Heal the people's bodies and encourage the people's spirits by telling them that the kingdom of God is near. They've waited for 400 years from the last writing of the Old Testament. They have waited a long time. They've been oppressed. They've been watching for the Messiah. And that Messiah is finally here. And so he sends out the people to start spreading that word. So as we see, there are some clear similarities between these two stories. And there are also some striking differences. The similarities are this. Both groups were sent just with what they wore so they would rely on God. They were both sent to heal and to proclaim the kingdom of God. They received, uh, when they were received, they were to give peace to the town where they stayed. When refused, they were not to take offense, but to move to the next town, to shake the dust off their sandals as a symbol of leaving that rejection behind. So here are the differences. The 72 were very specifically told that when you are refused, you are still to proclaim the kingdom. And so... Uh, Jesus uh, wanted his word to be preached and to be said even when hearts were hard. Heart, hearts were hard. There we go. Uh, so the 72 continued to proclaim even when they were rejected. Another difference is this they, uh, the 12 were told expressly that they would have authority over demons and disease, while the 72 were not told this. Another difference, this is the biggest one that I noted is seen upon the return of the two groups. The twelve came back, and on their return, they told all that they had done, and Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Simple and straightforward. This is what we did, Jesus. And then they went on with ministry. The 72 needed a little bit more teaching. And so when they came back, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They came back with joy, which is great, because they did works. They did what Jesus had told them by casting out demons in his name, but that's not actually what he told them to do. He said to heal and to preach. And so when they came back in their report, they focused solely on their works. They didn't mention the people they encountered. They didn't mention any conversions or any healings. Or any lives that had been changed as a result of their preaching about the kingdom. They were all consumed by their abilities to command demons. And here is Jesus with his loving rebuke after hearing the report. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He was there. He saw it. He knows what happened. And he doesn't get fixated on it all the way through. Next he said, Behold, I have have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Even though he had not previously told the 72 that they had power over the demons, he had given them that authority. Christ's power is over both the physical and the spiritual, and he has given that authority to us. This is where the rebuke comes in. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't fixate on the works. Don't fixate on the way that you can cast out demons, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Jesus brings the focus away from the amazing works and focuses on the real important thing, the heart and that our names are written in heaven. His original intent for sending that 72 is for them to prepare the way for his ministry. And teaching in the towns on his journey toward Jerusalem where he would eventually die for us. They were to pray for workers to join the harvest. As the first wave of workers, uh, they should have been producing more workers to join in that harvest. The 72 got distracted from their primary purpose of teaching about the kingdom of God by their newfound power over demons. In that distraction, they lost focus on the greater half of their purpose. Teaching the kingdom of God and preparing the way for God for Jesus as He went to Jerusalem. As I watch our society today, nothing in the root of us has really changed since the, the time of Jesus. We all need to answer this question: Who is Jesus? We have to answer that for ourselves. If we come to the same conclusion as the disciples did—that He is the Christ of God—then we are subject to His commands. As we follow his commands, we need to focus and stay on mission. We need to not get distracted by the things which may in and of themselves be good, but not our primary mission. I want to look at Christ's final command before he left for heaven, which we find in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said this just before he left. He came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ's simple charge is this, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey my commands. That's what we do. There are lots of other things. There are lots of ways we do this, but we need to make sure that we keep our eyes focused on these three things. We don't want to get distracted. We don't want to make the minor things our priority. And we want to stay on the simple mission which Jesus gave as he left this earth make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you revealed yourself to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit. I thank you for clear commands of what we're supposed to do as we are waiting for you to return. I pray that we won't get distracted while doing your work, but that we would rather be focused on preparing your way. Amen.